0: Welcome to Type Space, an audio short story podcast featuring original stories by Roger Colby. Tune in and blast off to Strange Worlds, Odd Corners of the Imagination, and Science Fiction Wonderment. The following short story, Ruin, was featured in my short story collection, The Headless White Horse, available on Kindle and on Amazon, and all other digital sources. Spin up the log program, he told the Amazon Echo. Log program 4433 commencing, Clark, came the soft female voice. He had reprogrammed her to use a series of processor arrays he had cobbled together to perform all the calculations and processes necessary for the field to form. She was emotionlessly obedient The day he found her at that moldy old thrift store on 7th and Berry was a godsend. The place felt like old clothes and cheap vinyl, but sometimes he found gold. His two-car garage was tough to navigate at times because of the massive bird's nest of magnets and wiring and circuit boards, but he didn't have the kids or the wife around anymore, his neglect for them eventually erasing them from his life. They had faded from the home he had built for them like a half-remembered dream. Nothing mattered to him but the mission since the accident. He would hit the target again, but it was peppered with holes where missed arrows had struck, none of them hitting that bullseye. Exactly 4,432 near misses. Each time he struck at the target, he made a hole, but each time he fired again, he would pull the original arrow free, using the same arrow again and again, hoping it would hold together for yet another chance, yet another sliver of hope, that he would strike the very moment in time before he had spoken those fateful words. The fletching of his proverbial arrow was separating at many places, and the head was becoming more and more dull. The flicker of his desk lamp near the kitchen door told him that the impossible mathematical trick he had discovered was working again, a little trick where he coaxed the fabric of space-time to fold. After so many tries had become routine. But even then, he still became frightened by the static in the air that stood his arm hair on end and shot out little fingers of light from the device. The shimmering box formed, then grew larger, and he stepped in place, ready to fire that same arrow again. Please hit the bullseye. Please hit the bullseye. This time, he hoped he would make a difference, change things. If only he could hit the bullseye, he knew he could change things. He had rehearsed it, in his mind, until he went mad with the details. He watched as the energy grid formed around him, a strange box of glowing power, and then it turned black. He pulled out a matchbook, and with a fingernail, lit one. In the flickering light, he saw the familiar black walls of the transporter, the grooves lining the interior like the lines of an old vinyl record. Soon he saw shapes, as the wall became slowly transparent, the small farmhouse he had seen before so many, many times. Its front porch was flanked by shuttered windows and the smell of catfish guts drying in the sun assaulting his nose. He could hear the talking and then sobbing from within, and so he hid behind the nearby cinder block well house. He had no idea at what time he had arrived, but it looked like it was at least noon by the sun in the sky the Oklahoma summer heat somehow tempered by the cool breeze coming up from the field in the valley after it had sifted through the ancient pecan grove. He saw his grandfather emerge, and he knew it was the middle of the 20th at least, and she wasn't married yet. Grandfather wore a black suit, one of the kind with the tiny lapels and slim Blues Brothers tie. The black horn glasses caught the glimmer of the sun as Clark tried to be quiet. His mother, a teenage girl, Slender and wearing a dress secretly made from a flour sack, something she had died to look like at the latest fashion, shuffled closely behind her father, her face streaming with tears. He had missed the target again, and his mouth quivered with the maddening frustration of it all. His grandmother followed them both, her head low, her thick glasses on the edge of her nose. She carried a white kerchief, balled up in one fist, and now he knew where most of the sobbing had been coming from. He couldn't let them see him, and he had to wait for a few hours before he would go back to try again. But he decided to follow them as before. His form not yet corporeal, he crept around the well house opposite them and watched as they climbed into the old powder blue Ford pickup truck, the rocker panels rusting and the tires bald. The old starter cranked the engine to life, and soon the truck drove around the house. Clark managed to stay behind the well house until they were well down the driveway. Time to hotwire the car again. It didn't matter, really, about the car. Whatever he did in this place would reset when he went back again. And he would have to go back again. Stealing the car never really changed anything, at least anything important to him. He drove at a distance behind because he knew where they were going. He had been here before many times, just not the right time or place. Sometimes he would appear just along the road, watch them drive by. Sometimes he would be just outside the church, staring in at her, going to a funeral, going to Sunday service, going to her wedding. Only once did he see the wedding, his dad looking so nervous and young, not crippled and feeble from cancer. As he left the long driveway, he could still see the dust kicked up by the truck on this old Johnson County road. He passed farm after farm, most of it cotton and peanuts, the green rose making strange optical illusions as he passed them, the spokes of a fast-spinning emerald wheel. Soon he entered Milburn, the little Oklahoma town where he had been deposited so many times in these thousands of trips over the course of the two years he had been making them. He turned right onto Highway 78 from 41A, and soon passed Ernie's General Store, where grandfather bought the feed for his livestock and where grandmother collected various spices for cooking those delicious meals. Once he dropped right in front of the store and nearly knocked his mother down. As he drove along, he remembered the unsettling epiphany he experienced when his mother simply stood, brushed herself off, and continued on her way. He still felt like he had done something horribly wrong. He saw the school up the hill where he had posed as a substitute teacher hundreds of times, another hundred as a parent looking to enroll his boy or girl or teenage miscreant, whatever the lie he told to fit in. Today, the 50s-era cars lined the streets. Today, his great-grandfather was being laid to rest. He drove the car over to the side of the street and parked it. The parking lot across the street at the church was full, the chrome from each of the cars glistening in the sun. He could attend the funeral just as he had done before a few dozen times and nobody would say anything about it. His clothing was nondescript on purpose. Good old moldy thrift store. He stepped out onto the smooth asphalt and walked briskly across, his arms at his sides, his eyes squinting in the noonday sun. Many of the townsfolk were filing into the church now, and he knew that the funeral would start soon. "'Don't rightly know you, son,' said old Audrey Hayes, a farmer who had land near Clark's grandfather." Clark had seen him many times at different stages in his life, once even dropping into his bedroom when he was getting ready for the day, the most awkward of all trips to the past. "Uh, I'm from out of town, sir, Clark replied. And your name? Audrey Hayes, said Audrey, his calloused hand shooting out and swallowing Clark's. Friend or family? This conversation felt like deja vu because it was the worst kind. Friend from upstate. Tulsa, Clark managed. Audrey only nodded like he always did and continued on after he had pumped Clark's hand a few times as usual and again left Clark's hand a little sore. But as Clark's eyes drifted away from old Audrey tottering off toward the church, he noticed something out of place. Standing in the middle of the highway was a dark figure on a white horse that slowly moved forward. The hooves made a strange echoing clopping sound as he went and the dark figure wore a long hooded black robe that drifted in the faint Oklahoma breeze. Clark turned, moving behind a maroon 51 Buick and crouching down so that he could just see the shrouded head of the rider as the horse cantered past him. Then a quick jerk of a ragged arm pulled the horse to the right, and the rider circled the car to stop just in front of Clark. Clark stood and backed away, stumbling to the ground as the horse came closer, its nostrils flaring. Its dull eyes wide. And were those cataracts? Look, pal, said the rider, his face shrouded into the thick black material. You gotta stop this nonsense. Were there worms in there? Clark only stared as the rider kicked his horse's haunches and caused it to inch forward so that Clark had to press against the car as horse and rider pushed past him. The rider pulled sidelong on the reins, and the horse spun around to face Clark again. All the other people around him ignored the horse and rider, and Clark absently thought that a possible side effect of time travel was brain damage. No, you're not dreaming this, Clark, said the rider. I'm real. I just wish you'd stop with your fool's errand before you make a mistake that you will regret. Also, dang it, I'm trying to do my job and you're getting in the way. Who? Are you who I think you are? The horse snorted and a string of bloody snot dribbled to the dirt. Death, you mean? Said the rider. You could call me that. I only look like this because I thought it would frighten you back to your time and place. Apparently you're not driven by those emotions. Here, give me a sec. The horse and rider faded away, and in their place was a pale man who looked every bit like David Bowie in his thin white Duke phase. Better? If you were going for frightening, then you kind of went the other way. The Duke smiled and winked the one dark eye with the damaged iris. No need in being overt, said the Duke. Not if you're afraid, anyway. Perhaps you will listen to reason. It's great you built that machine, Clark. But this time, when you go back, you need to destroy it. You're mucking up the works. Clark took one step forward. His fists balled up as if to fight. I will not... Without warning, as if powered by something unnatural, the Duke struck Clark on the shoulder, sending him sprawling onto the gravel beside the road. A couple of the funeral-goers turned to look, but then went back to their business. You will, said the Duke. Don't make this a thing, Clark. I know you want to go back to that moment, but that moment is gone, bro. Shine it on. Clark stood his elbows dripping blood down his arms, and he rushed at the Duke only to pass through him as if he were a ghost. And he had to stop himself before he barreled headlong into a nearby powder-blue Edsel. "'I'm warning you, Clark,' said the Duke. "'When you go back, destroy the device. "'Even if you make it to the right time and place, she won't listen. "'She'll still be hit by the drunk driver. "'If you get her to stay home, she'll slip in the shower. "'It's a time, clock." At least let her slip away quickly and not in agony like the many other possibilities laid out for her. Clark's face flushed. His fist balled tighter until his knuckles cracked. But I have to! He screamed. I can't let the last thing I said to her be that! I just can't! There was a signature flicker of reality around them then. The strange black walls appearing once more, their grooves like the surface of a giant vinyl record. No! Clark screamed, there's still time, there's still time, always more time. The wind began to blow, driving the dust into Clark's eyes, and the Duke stood before him, nonchalantly brushing little bits of dirt from his black suit. It's what makes you who you are, Clark. You didn't get to tell her the right thing before it was her time, before it was time for me to help her onto the bus. That's okay. That's the way things are. These hard things are what makes your kind stronger and more interesting. If you don't destroy the device when you get back, things will be bad. Bad for all humanity. You've been warned." And then suddenly the Duke was gone, and Clark was in the odd hallway lined with the black shiny walls. Then he was in the intersection again at night, the next night after he left, and he would have to walk the five miles back to his house again, and think about how he could alter the effects of the machine. He had to get it to be more precise, but all of his efforts over the past few years had been in vain. It still deposited him randomly in the past of his mother's lifetime. The long walk back was uneventful, save a breeze that blew through the trees around him along the pockmarked blacktop road. The moon was full tonight, and he didn't have to use the flashlight. When he arrived home, the piles of scrap metal and discarded appliances and electronics littered the yard. His garage door stood open, and the machine sat idle, waiting for him to return, to try yet again. And he would. He would ignore the thin white duke. He stomped into the garage and stepped up onto the projection field platform, which was constructed from several solid nickel plates, all knitted together with copper and brass grommets. Alexa, he said. Spin up the log program. Right away, Clark, she said, her voice somehow soothing. He closed his eyes and waited. He felt a twinge of pain just below his sternum then, and his neck felt stiff, his arms seizing in the worst cramp he had ever felt. His eyes flicked open to see the thin white duke standing before him. It's your time, Clark, he said, a smile on his narrow, pale lips. Time to go to your appointment. Your mother is waiting for you. Thank you for listening to Typerspace. All content is copyrighted. Please visit rogercolby.com for Roger Colby's books and his weekly blog.